everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, a teacher, or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer, or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, educate, collaborate. Hi, I'm Ashley Barlow, and I am going to talk to you today about building a collaborative IEP team by focusing on the team. We only have a few minutes together. This is actually a talk that I give in 60 minutes. So we're going to fly through this pretty quickly because I want to make sure I get all of the content to you. I'm going to skip introductions. If you're interested in reading this slide, you can find it over in your materials. We've got more important stuff to do. Hopefully you already know me. If not, go back and look at the welcome video. So we're going to talk today, as I said in the title, about really working on building a collaborative IEP team. Why do I feel so passionately about collaboration? Because I think that is the key to the IEP team functioning the way that it was intended to function. And you're going to hear here in a second about how there's lots and lots of research on how these teams were supposed to function. So the word parent is in IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the federal law that governs special education largely over 400 times. The word parent is in the federal law over 400 times. Now here's the big kicker. Congress did a ton of research before it instituted IDEA and it has continued to as it reauthorizes and whatever. And this research, one of the things that it proved was that it is super valuable to have parents be included in those IEP teams. Now, one of the things that happens in IEP teams is parents don't feel empowered, and then the team doesn't function the way it was supposed to function. So the law is based on this research. The research said we have to involve the parents, and if the parents aren't involved, if the parents just sit there and nod and say, yes, this is going to go great, then the law is not working according to the intent of the law. What can we do about this? We parents have to understand that we are the general contractors of what happens at home and in the community. We are in charge of what happens at home and in the community. Of course, there's other valuable members to IEP teams too, all of those school people that are listed here, as well as anybody that you bring in that has knowledge about your child. Each of these people has an important role to play in both developing and implementing the actual IEP. So we're going to talk about a hypothetical. I don't watch TV. I like can't watch TV. However, I've been watching the Gilmore Girls and I love it. I don't know why I love it. I know why I love it. I don't know why it has captured my attention, but I love it. And so Gilmore Girls is set in this, I think, hypothetical little town in Connecticut. And it's like the office, I think, where there's like an annoying townsperson that like wants to have all of these different rules and regulations. And there's a guy that has like a thousand jobs. That's like really quirky. And there's like a diner guy that wears flannel shirts and he's like big and you couldn't help but love him. 
So this is the stereotypical little town. Okay, so you live in Stars Hollow, Connecticut, and you are in charge of addressing the tick population. There was actually just an episode that I just watched about tick days or something where they wanted to address the tick population. Too many ticks, people are getting sick, right? So you have a team that's going to address this with you. And the team includes somebody in charge of data, somebody in charge of pest elimination, somebody in charge of finance a science person that's going to look at the environment, Lyme disease, all of that stuff. And then the tick-free dance person, somebody in charge of that. So we've got lots of different dynamics going on, but pest pest elimination Eric wants to spray pesticide, but science Susie is worried about the impact of the pesticide on the town's 100-year catalpa trees. This is the like oddities that happen in this show. Dancing Darcy wants to hang glowing ticks from paper mache deer at the dance, but Elimination Eric worries that the glue will attract the ticks. And you, as the chair, suggest a banner to advertise all of your efforts, but Finance Fred says you can only afford a sign on the town's marquee. The problem is nobody says a word about this. Rather, your team, you're in, the, you're in charge, you get together one time and you have an oddly contentious meeting. Like it's just super uncomfortable. Nobody really talks, but it's like oddly contentious. Have you ever been at an oddly contentious meeting? I think you're starting to see the parallels probably. And at this meeting, you discuss goals for t- addressing the tick population and celebrating your success. At the meeting, you even set goals with data points. We've got 10 million deer ticks today, and we want to have 8 million deer ticks in one year from today. But without talking during the year, everyone does their thing. Pest elimination does their thing. Finance does his thing. Dance does their thing. And then pest elimination, Eric, sends data three times. So we get quarterly data. Of course, the deer-free dance or the tick-free dance is a total flop because Jess shows up. Jess is the annoying guy. I think he's like Luke on 90210 if you're in my generation. Anyway, it's a total flop. Why is it a flop? Of course, you now see the similarities between what happened in our hypothetical Stars Hollow deer-tick situation with the IEP team. I tell people all the time that I read meeting minutes or conference summaries or the summary of what happened at a meeting. And it says the parent rights were offered and the parents didn't want their parent rights. And we reviewed the IEP and parent concerns where they want to work on potty training or they're concerned about behaviors or they want them to have somebody to sit with at lunch. And and maybe two, maybe parents have two things, but they're like super isolated, kind of tangential things that don't really have anything to do with special education necessarily. And a meeting was adjourned and that's it. And then somebody throws data at the parents three times and there's no discussion around the data and there's no discussion about how the instruction is going to change with the data. And then in a year we get back together and we do it all over again. Is your IEP team working as a team? Or are you planning the dance? Everybody does their own thing. Nobody listens to how anything's going. And then you aren't getting progress or you aren't getting, it's not happening. Whatever it is, you just sense that it's not happening. So one of my favorite books, I forgot to get it 
is a prop, but it's very close to me here in my home office. It's always right here. It's called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. The author is Patrick Lincium. What I love about this book is that it is, it's simple. It is, my hands are pretty small, but it's not a very big book. And what he does is he goes through five problems that happen on teams. We now know that you, a parent, are a part of a team. And if you aren't the parent and you are a related service professional or you are a teacher or an administrator or a counselor, you also as leaders in your school community and as the people that have the most perceived power on the IEP team, you can learn a lot from this too, because you can set up your teams in order to solicit this kind of feedback, this kind of teamwork. So we're gonna talk here in a second about those five dysfunctions. We're going to talk about how they parallel over to special education. And then at the end, I'm gonna tell you what the solutions are. You're gonna feel a little uncomfortable and that is intentional. So dysfunction number one an absence of trust. This comes from an invulnerability, an absence of trust. Raise your hand right now. You're at your house. You're by yourself. You're probably folding laundry and your kids are probably like, why is she raising her hand? But we're all going to raise our hands. Who has felt a lack of trust on their IEP team? I certainly have. And I think probably 100% of my clients have felt a lack of trust with somebody or something, some proposal at the IEP table or during the year in the special education setting. This lack of trust comes from an invulnerability. How vulnerable are you willing to be at the IEP table? So the lack of trust comes from a lack of commitment and any quote is from my favorite book. It comes from a lack of commitment and a failure to buy in to decisions and an unwillingness to be vulnerable with the group. When you are unwilling to be vulnerable with the group, it leads to a fear of conflict. Because if you don't have any trust, <laughs> if you don't feel comfortable talking, if you don't feel like you can engage in constructive conflict, which would yield effective change, the discussion doesn't happen. So what happens is people resort to veiled discussion and guarded comments. How many times have you been at an IEP team meeting or just been talking to somebody at school? I also have my tea because I've got this little tickle in my throat. Excuse me. I'll try to be a quiet drinker. So how often have you sat at an IEP team and heard people say, let me think about how I want to say this or stumble over their words. Maybe you can tell that the general education teacher thinks that the special education teacher could give them better modifications. And so you say, are there modifications given in science class? And they're like, yes. And you're like, yes, but, but we don't say yes, but because we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to commit. We're afraid of the conflict because we can sense that there's an issue between gen ed and special ed or there's an issue between OT and administration. And we're like, everybody needs their jobs. This is, they're doing this for me. They're kind of doing me a favor. And so we don't say anything. Or maybe you're an educator and there's something that you don't want to say to a parent. Like you don't want to ask, do you notice motor tics? Or have you ever asked about autism? Or I don't agree with what your private therapist is saying. We can't be vulnerable for some reason. If we were vulnerable, none 
of these issues would arise because in this book, you'll see how things build upon one another. So we have this lack of vulnerability, which comes into a fear of conflict because we're like, I'm afraid I'm going to do something wrong. I don't want to put myself out there. And so we have a fear of conflict. This yields artificial harmony. How many times have you been in an IEP team and just known that people are like, uh-huh, 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 but they've got more to say? And you've probably heard me say, look at the person that looks like they maybe don't agree and say, your body language is saying maybe you don't agree. Or how do you feel about that, Susan? That artificial harmony can really get in the way of the team's progress. So let's talk about this fear of conflict, which remember is rooted in a lack of vulnerability. If we don't trust one another, we aren't going to engage in open, constructive, ideological conflict. Open, constructive, ideological conflict. Don't turn it off, Susan. Don't turn it off. We have to get comfortable with construction, with constructive ideological, you can do it. This is going to work towards bettering your team, which is going to improve outcomes for your child. If we don't do it, we're going to continue to preserve the sense of artificial harmony. So let's talk a little bit more about constructive ideological conflict. I used to say conflict yields what did I say? Conflict. Conflict yields effective change. Holy cow, it's out of my brain. Conflict yields effective change. I do not mean adversarial natures. I don't mean name calling. I don't mean shouting. I don't mean raising my voice. Yesterday, I faced conflict head on. I rolled up my sleeves and I faced conflict. And you know how I did it? I asked a bunch of questions with no tone other than, okay, so what specially designed, what does specially designed instruction look like in reading? What does specially designed instruction look like in math? Okay, so what you just described sounds to me like a bunch of modified modifications to the gen ed curriculum and then some accommodations. But are you using a particular curriculum? And she looked at me with artificial harmony and I was like, no, if you're going to pull a worksheet, Where do you pull it from? And where's your scope and sequence? And I just started asking questions. Like, no, really, seriously, it's cool. It's chill. I had an open mind, an open body. I work very deliberately because I am an intense type A person. So I lean back. I make sure that my arms are out. I'm in this little circle, but I don't cross my arms. I have an open posture. And I just started asking questions. Great advocacy strategy. Am I addressing conflict? Yeah, because I'm like, you're not teaching them but I did it in a very non-adversarial way. Tension makes for constructive conflict. Was there tension when I was asking these questions? Absolutely. But was the conflict constructive? Yes, because we got to the answer and eventually we worked out a problem. So here's what Lencioni says about that. I would trade that kind of false harmony any day for a team's willingness to argue effectively about an issue and then walk away with no collateral damage. Okay, great. Sometimes we have to just agree to disagree and that's okay too, but we've got to go in and discuss it. And he uses argue. I don't necessarily even think we have to argue. Sometimes I do narrow in a little bit. Like yesterday, I I did say to a director of special education in a very big district, this is why people don't do cognitive testing because because if A, then B, and if B, then C, and if C, then D, and if D, then you're in a self-contained classroom. 
And you can see how this happens. So I like hit it hard. And then I was like, but you know what? I can see that you don't want to do this in this case. So let's get back on track in this case. And then we just do it. Sometimes you got to go in and you got to nail them and address the conflict. And then you can back out. And if you are on a school team, you can do this too. You can say to the parents, I understand that you don't want to do homework or that homework is really difficult or that you're really busy, but sometimes if you aren't going to read 20 minutes a day, you can't expect better outcomes in reading. What can we do? So you say it, you zero in, and then you can narrow back out and say, so what kind of changes can we think of here as a team, right? If we can't address that conflict, if we can't engage in productive ideological conflict during meetings, we're through. May as well not even talk. Listen, he says every great movie has conflict. We're drawn to working through conflict, to fighting for our truth respectfully and productively. And boy, that should open your eyes because so many people are afraid of conflict, but they love action movies. They love a good Matt Damon movie. What this does when we do this is we get commitment because people have to feel safe and in order to state their opinions and to feel heard. Once people feel heard, all they have to do is feel heard. Most of the time we can work on. So even if we agree to disagree, but somebody actually feels heard and they feel understood and they feel like they were able to hash it out, say their piece, then the team should be able to work forward. And there's all kinds of psychology behind that. So what happens if we don't get that commitment? If people don't feel safe and they don't feel heard, then we don't get commitment. And this is rooted in ambiguity. Ambiguity, like wishy-washiness. I don't really know. It's up in the air. I don't really know. Okay, so a lack of commitment comes from ambiguity. And really, it's like a failure to buy into decisions. All right. So what Lencioni says is there are two parts to commitment. Clarity. I understand. That's why we had to hash it out conflictually. I now understand. I have a clear set understanding of what the team is working on. And then you also need buy-in. And what he's saying is we have to have commitment in order to get buy-in. Consensus is an attempt to please everyone. If you don't have conflict, everybody's just kind of, okay, uh-huh, yep, we can do it. Sure, we can do it. Consensus usually turns into displeasing everyone. If we don't have consensus, there's another alternative. I'm going to give you some examples here in a second. Alternatively, reasonable people don't have to get their way in a discussion. They just need to be heard and to know that their input was considered and responded to. The idea is to disagree and commit. Then once the commitment is established, the team has to work to hold every person accountable. Okay, so often what happens is a parent comes in and wants something or a school comes in and wants something. Let's say that it's either the parent or the school that says, we really think that the student can benefit from this particular reading. I want Orton Gillingham. And so the parent says, I want OG. I need OG instruction. And the parents are like, he is based in OG is really good for students with these strengths. Actually, I'm going to switch and I'm going to use Linda Mood Bell because I made this mistake with Linda Mood Bell for myself. So I want Linda Mood Bell. I want lips. And the school says, finally, they're like, fine, we can do lips. We've never heard of it. We don't know what it is, but we'll pay a thousand bucks. We'll get somebody trained and we'll give them lips. And everybody's like, okay, okay, okay. Now the school team knew that in order to do lips, the student has to have really good body awareness because lips is founded in like knowing where the tongue is and knowing how sounds are made. 
And this student has a motor planning issue that is that is primary and secondarily affects the child's expressive life. If you've got a motor planning def deficit, chances are you're having a hard time figuring out where your tongue is in your mouth. And so in order to put your tongue from d to is going to be hard for you because you aren't going to tell that your tongue is here the, up at the front of your palate right behind your teeth. I'm not a speech therapist, as opposed to making a popping sound where your tongue is out of the way and your lips are going. And you also aren't able to understand, it might be more difficult for you to understand that d has voice behind it, whereas p does not have voice behind it. You might not have that body awareness. I personally didn't ask for it. I bought lips during the pandemic and I trained myself and I realized there's no way that Jack is going to be able to do this because it involves like interviewing of where's that sound made and Jack's kind of exploration of it on his own. And he needs something that's more teacher directed if we're going to do it that way. So let's say that the school team knew that lips was never going to work for this kid, but they didn't want to address the conflict. They didn't feel comfortable. They didn't feel comfortable being vulnerable. So they didn't address the conflict. And everybody just was like, I'm sure we can get lips because it'll shut you up. It's going to shut up the parent. Or what if it's the school team that says, I just went to this conference and I heard about lips and it sounds really great. And it's Linda Mood Bell and I want to go to Indianapolis and I want to get trained. And the district said that they can get me a $2,500 and it's going to be great. And I'm going to go get lips. And you're a parent that has already been trained in lips, or you're a parent that's a speech therapist, or you're a parent that whose best friend tried lips and has a profile similar to your kids. And you're like, lips is never going to work, but you don't say anything because you're like, they want to do lips and I'm I, ugh, whatever. I don't trust anybody. So I'm just not going to say anything. And you're like, they're going to do it. Does anybody have buy-in? No. Nobody has buy-in. And because there's no buy-in, because we have this artificial harmony, who's getting hurt? In both scenarios, somebody knows that the child is not going to do well. But everybody's kind of like, eh, all right, fine, they just want lips. I don't even know what it stands for. It's capital L, little I, capital P, capital S. I'm sure it stands for something I can't remember. So then what we get is the fourth dysfunction. Avoidance of accountability. This is rooted in low standards. What happens is, fine, we'll do it. You want to do it. We'll try inclusion. You want to do it. We don't think it's going to work, but we'll do it. Sometimes you know you disagree with something, but decide to let it go so you don't cause waves. Now you know why there are swimmers and ocean in this branding of this presentation, as well as the branding for all of Ashley Barlow Company. Sometimes you disagree with something, but you just let it go because you don't want to cause waves. Without commitment, even the most focused and driven people can hesitate to call their peers on their actions and behaviors that seem counterproductive to the good of the team. So then what happens is we lack, we lack the buy-in and we lack the accountability. We don't say, you know what? I just don't think LIPS is working. Now we're doing it. Now we're trying it. And I don't think it's working. You went and you got trained, but I don't think it's working. We aren't doing it because we didn't have it in the beginning. And we're like, eh. And where's that come from? Like, where does that come from in a human? Before I give you the answer to the fifth dysfunction, I want for you to think about where that comes from. You knew it. You knew it. You knew that lips was never going to work. You're a parent and you're like, I knew it. My friend that's the speech therapist told me that wasn't going to work. Or you are the teacher and you're like, that was never going to work. He doesn't have the motor planning for lips. 
I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. What's in the way? It's your ego. Your ego gets in the way there and then nobody cares what happens because you're like, it's not my program. I didn't choose it. Just try it and let them fail. I don't care. Just I hope the parents, I hope that the parents made me do this and I hate it and it's not going to work. And so I'll do it, but I hope it doesn't work. My status and my ego get in the way so that I am right. I knew it. Status and ego. You are more concerned with yourself than you're concerned with the team's success. It even happens to me as a parent where I'm like, they want to do this. And what was I going to say? All right, fine. Just do it. It's not going to work. Here's the solution. We have to address a set of common goals and measurements and then use them to make collective decisions. The team's job is to make the results so clear, the results that we want to achieve. We have to make those so clear that everybody at the table, I'm sorry, let's start over. The team's job is to make the results that it wants to achieve so clear that everyone at the table, so clear to everyone at the table. In other words, everybody there has to know what is happening. And it has to be so clear that no one would even consider doing something purely to enhance his or her individual status or ego. The goal is for people to not say, I don't care. Wasn't my idea. The key is to define the goals and the results in a way that is simple enough to grasp easily and specific enough to be actionable. And that is the key. So what do we do about it? If this is so clear, this when I read this book again, after having practiced special education for, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years, whenever I read this book, I was like, oh, because I read this book early on in my legal career when I was first starting to study mediation or maybe even in law school in my alternative dispute resolution class. I don't remember when I read it first, honestly. But whenever I read it, the first time I was like, oh, that's a really good book. The second time after (laughs) sitting through so many IEP meetings, I was like, Eureka, this is so applicable to special education. So what do we do about this at the IEP table? Communicate, communicate, communicate. If you don't have my communication binder, unload it today. There are templates in there where literally you can just type in your kid's name, type in your kid's diagnoses, type in the medical updates, communicate, communicate, communicate. If you don't know about my Sunday email or my Friday email, depending on what part of the team you are on, you need to know. If you don't know about my back to school email and my start of summer emails, you need to know this information. Communicate, communicate. Know who's on the team. Define everyone's specific roles and be clear about everyone's task, but encourage cross-checking. So I'm the finance guy. I'm the pest guy. I'm the science guy. I'm the OT. Because what the OT isn't only in charge of fine motor, OTs literally study brain development and motor planning and every like piece of how the brain makes the body move through everyday life. That is what OTs do. Does that involve almost every aspect of school, home, and community life? Yep, it sure does. So the OT should be like the general contractor of all of these people, if they're on your, know who's on the team, know what you're primarily supposed to do. And if you're planning a big event and the finance guy hasn't weighed in on the budget, for heaven's sake, solicit his input. If you are planning something for somebody that has variant behaviors and the behaviorist hasn't said anything in the meeting, for heaven's sakes, ask the behaviorist for input. 
But don't just ask the behaviorist for input. Cross-check. Do you see that in gen ed? Do you see that in special ed? How does it look different in the two different settings? And principal, you're in the cafeteria during lunchtime. How does it look in the cafeteria? We're cross-checking. If flight attendants can do it, we can do it too. I don't know what it means when they cross-check, but they always say that at the end of the flight. Get informed about special education practice and negotiation strategy. You must know those three things in order to advocate successfully in special education. You have to know the laws, the framework of the laws. My lab is a great place to do that. You have to know negotiation strategy, how to get what you want. And you have to know exactly what happens in the classroom. You've gotta be familiar with the different curricula. You've gotta understand the five components to reading according to the science of reading. You've got to understand this line, basic information about educating children and special education. Now listen, number four is probably the hardest one. It's modeling humility, modeling vulnerability, asking questions and admitting to having researched something. Admitting to not knowing something and asking for time to come back. Asking questions, saying, I don't know. Showing that you can be vulnerable. Who cares if you cry? Who cares if you get upset? Who cares if you are having a hard time coping with something? Who cares if you're really stressed out? Who cares if you are just really hung up on something? Model humility, it's the secret. Remember, that was the first component. We've got to have that vulnerability and humility. Encourage the team to ask questions and solicit input from all team members. I've said it above, but it deserves its own byline here is number five. Number six, speak up proactively and reactively. This is sneaking in another communication strategy. So make sure that you're talking proactively about your child, sending updates about your child, sending an all about me book, sending a back to school email. If you're a teacher, make sure that you're saying, I might see this happening, or I've heard about this happening in the past, or these are things that we might want to look out for. And then also speak up reactively when something happens. Make sure that you are talking consistently with your team. Lean into the conflict, aiming for that ideological and effective change. To be a part of the change, commit fully and humbly. Don't let your ego get in the way. Once you've been heard, commit to it. Have that buy-in. Allow yourself, humble yourself to saying, okay, fine, we're going to try it because I'm part of this team and my kid is at the middle. My student is at the middle of all of this. Confirm clarity amongst all members to ensure that you get it bought in. Make sure that everybody really does understand what's happening and that everybody does feel heard. And then finally, <laughs> did I say communicate? Communicate early and often. Okay, what else do we have here at Ashley Barlow Company? I just want to go through an overview with you before we close out for the day. We have the Special Education and Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. You can listen to it anywhere. I drop episodes weekly. And if you are a VIP club member, you get the episodes a week early. I have two online training courses. The lab is intended for mainly for parents and for school support staff. So the lab provides a kind of nuts and bolts IEPs 101 course that really focuses on the framework of the law. We started evaluations and eligibility, and we actually go all the way through due process so that you really understand the legal processes. 
lots of advocacy tips along the way. I have the ABC course, which is intended for advocates to really either start or grow their advocacy business. A stands for advocacy, B stands for business, and C stands for concepts and special education. Every single module has a lesson of each of those, one advocacy strategy, one on business, and one on a concept of special ed. Then I have ABC Consulting. If you would like for me to do a file review and to meet with you for one hour about your specific child's IEP, please feel free to contact me. There's a link on the website for the ABC Consulting. I can't take every case that comes in, but I usually get through between 12 and 24 of those. That's been my kind of annual average. I haven't even been doing it a year, but I can do one or two. I am rolling out today the ABC Club. This is my monthly membership. The membership involves early access to the podcast, digital downloads, a monthly live, and lots of additional resources like guides and templates and videos and more and more information. I own a company called Barlow Media Company. If you are interested in starting a digital course or a podcast, or you would like to publish any kind of media in the special education realm, contact me to see if we can partner together. Then, of course, on the website, we have all kinds of free and paid downloads and resources like my inclusion workshop and my behavior workshop. You're here at the virtual conference, and if you're interested in having me come speak to your organization, I would love to talk to you. Shoot me an email or DM me on social media. As we say here at Ashley Barlow Company, ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, and collaborate. And thank you so much for joining us.